What I will do when we're having music, we don't start too long, um, is I'll pass a little bag around and you can just pop your post it note in there. And then I'll, the panel, the idea is the panel will kind of share the post its Not here, because we don't have time today. You know, in the coming days, not too long because otherwise we'll forget. In the coming days, we'll look at you know everything that's come in. We'll see if there's any commonality. We might all find that we've chosen one particular piece of music, and that's you know clearly the piece of music that speaks to generations and cultures and whatever. Who knows? I have absolutely no idea what we're going to get, which is kind of what I'm interested in. Um, and we'll Francis, feed all that back. Did we have a Skype account that we were using? Or should we just yeah, cool. Um, do you want to use mine? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Want to sign in? I learned how to do this yesterday, so this will be interesting. I have yours microphone. Sorry? Microphone. Would you like to just use microphone? Oh, yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Thank you. Will that work? Should work, shouldn't it? Oh, there. Your password. Oh, right. I think you need to put your username back in. Do you think my username is below? I think it's gone back to the friends' yeah, house. Yeah, that's the trouble. I thought you had a friends one that you were going to use. No, that's no, fine. Let's just keep going and try. Would you like to play, you two? Tim, we've, Ilana? We've still got a minute before we start. <laughs> yeah. before you can always play. <laughs> OK, thanks, Christian. Uh, all right, we're not late. It's all right, we, also can, we can also run over. So. Could anybody email David to let him know that we're, we're trying to sort things out? Because I've got a couple of desperate emails. I lost my phone. <laughs> um, so, do we think that's good at this point? Do we think we just put that bit in there and that'll do? Is that your Skype yeah, username? Yeah, yeah, that should be And then my password. password, yeah. That's me. So then if we get... Oh, that's your present. That's, that's, that's my... Yeah, can you do it a bit? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. We're going to have a Skype photo of the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds rough.
I could try um, to see the voice. Yeah. Okay, so the best way to do this is if you've got a presentation, you can kind of share it via Skype. Um, I don't. You don't. That's easy. Okay. okay, well, you're now speaking to the, the room, and I'll hand over to Francis, and I'll turn the box down. And Francis, Chris. when you're talking, it would make sense for you to use this little thing. So that everyone can. Okay, good. Okay, good. So let's just turn this on. Hello, 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 hello. That's good. Okay. That goes on your clothes somewhere. Yeah. Does that sound any better? Can people hear me? Yeah. Can you hear the back? Yeah. And that can you just sit? Oh, sit in your back pocket or whatever. Cool. Okay. Can I talk to Devin? Can you hear me? I don't know where to look. Uh, I can vaguely hear you. You can. Okay. Can you hear me if I'm closer to the laptop? Yeah. Okay. Devin, can we just? We're going to start properly now. So can you just wait for a little bit, and then I'll introduce you and your bit. Is that okay? Great. Thank you. I'll put the thumbs up there. Does that work? Right. Good. Welcome. Uh, running slightly later than we planned, but hey, it's all right, we can run over a little bit if people don't mind, if we need to. Um, you'll have seen in the blurb, I'm going to go through that again because I've said it once, but actually the room is full now. And lots of people have come, not late, on time, so, uh, but there will be people who didn't hear it the first time, so I'll just run through it again and we'll see where the post-its have got to. Um, if you read the blurb, it said your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to bring your one piece of music you would leave to future generations uh, for whatever reasons you would want to do that. So, um, what is travelling around the room at the moment is a one pack of post-its 
I only had one pack, which I managed to acquire from the shop downstairs. Uh, there's probably a hundred. I don't know if it's a hundred in here. Maybe that's roughly, probably not. So in theory, there is enough. If not, write it on a piece of paper and put it in the bag anyway. You know, don't worry. Use, use some other means to give us your legacy tune. If you listen to Radio 4, uh, you'll have come across the legacy tune idea, or I don't know what they call it, but um, it's kind of your music for future generations. Right, <coughs> Sorry? Track. Inheritance track. There you go. I didn't want to use inheritance because it kind of has money tones around it, but legacy is something about your legacy for the future. Um, the posters are travelling around. Are they, have they got everywhere? Anybody got them still? Have they all gone? Has anybody not got one? Great, worked. Well, no, it didn't work. Right, okay. For the people who haven't got one, can you please help the people who haven't got one? And if you still don't get one, as I say, just use a piece of paper. So what I want you to do, over the next 15 to 20 minutes while Devin's talking, um, try and write something down. And then we will collect it and feel free to put your email address on it and we will be in touch. Now, how do I get back to my presentation? If indeed I can. I'm asking you, I have no idea if you know how to do this. We've only just met, but we have met virtually. Uh, so that's the first bit. So there you go, that's the first bit. Um, so I'm going to just really briefly introduce the connections between climate change and refugees, really briefly, because that's what I said I'd do. Devon will be speaking for about half an hour, but we'll have a break in Devon's presentation because he's doing it by Skype and it's a bit challenging for everybody probably. And at that point, Tim and Alana will play some music. And then we'll go back to Devon and he'll carry on. And then, can I pronounce your name properly? Janani. Janani will then uh, deliver her presentation. And there's spaces for question and answers, but I'm going to have to keep track of time simply because I don't have a piece of paper with a running order on it. But I'll find it on an email on the phone, which I lost a bit earlier. So the connection is um, I used to lead Friends of the Earth International's climate campaign. And I, I, I ran it at the time we were feeding into the COP2000 negotiations in The Hague. And I was very struck by uh, lots of the information I read at that time, but there was one thing that absolutely got me, and it was the Red Cross World Disasters Report. It's that blue thing in the corner. But what it says is, and I'll just read it, is that um, that particular report, and do grab hold of it, you can get it online, 1999, um, and it explored the way specifically how environmental change and human short-sightedness had combined to trigger disaster. Now, the one sentence that was in there, it's a long report, but the one sentence that really is important is, in 1998, it was an El Nino year, and it was the hottest year on record at that time. This is now the hottest year on record, 2015. In 1998, more people were displaced from their homes by environmental degradation, extreme weather events, than by war for the first time since anybody had recorded it. Christian Aid ran a really interesting campaign called Unnatural Disasters, and what they were trying to say is, these things are not natural. Earthquakes might be, volcanoes might be, but some of our floods and some of our hurricanes and some of our droughts might not be natural. They might actually be unnatural disasters that are being driven by the way we're changing our ecosystem, the planet that we depend upon. So they produced a fantastic campaign, which I sort of worked with in 2000, and they said 11 out of 13 of their disasters were 
as a result of extreme weather. Now, the list is there. I won't go through it, but you can just sort of see you've got El Nino floods in Peru, you had drought in Sudan, you had Venezuelan mudslides. I was in the negotiations when 10,000 people died in Honduras. I was at the climate negotiations while we were trying to negotiate, and 10,000 people were being killed. And we still kept going on about what on earth were we going to do. That's still going on. I'm going to leave that there, and we're going to move on to uh, Devin. Hopefully. And we'll say hello to Devin. Okay. My basic thesis today is that climate change makes violent conflict more likely, and in turn, this is bad for health. So there are two propositions here. First, that there's a link between climate change and conflict, and we'll spend the first 15 minutes <coughs> exploring the evidence around this. The second proposition, that climate change-associated conflict is bad for health, is on the one hand, very obvious. But as we spent the second part of uh, my presentation, looking into it more, more deeply, I, I think we'll find some, uh, some issues that are particularly concerning, uh, some things that are not quite obvious. But first, how do we test this first proposition that climate change makes conflict more likely? One of the great strengths of public health as a discipline is that it is focused on outcomes on the ground and is therefore very willing to transcend disciplinary boundaries in search of answers that will promote health. Looking across the entirety of the academy, there have been three approaches to answering this question. The first has been to qualitatively explore recent conflicts and hypothetical future conflicts to determine whether or not there's, uh, there could be a link to climate change conflict. The second approach has been to use recent conflicts uh, and recent changes in weather or weather events as, as proxies for climate change and test if there's an association between uh, the, the weather anomalies and conflict. The third approach is to look at civilizations before our using archaeological and historical methods to see if they experience an association between changes in their climates and conflict. A lot of people are engaged in this sort of research uh, inside the academy, as I'm sure you can imagine, but also outside of the academy, including military and defense professionals and public health and medical professionals operating outside of the academy. And it's not always the case that these groups of people talk to each other. Uh, and as a result, some are somewhat confined to their own lands. So, Political science uh, within the academy has tended to ignore the insights from archaeology and history. <clears throat> and just before we go on, I, I mentioned uh, there are a number of uh, military and defense professionals interested in this question. And while we're going to review the evidence in more detail, I think it's just worth noting up front that 
every, uh, just about every defense professional I've ever met doesn't doubt that there's a link and that this is a risk that needs to be uh, thought about and dealt with. Uh, and the way the military has conceptualized climate change is that it's a threat multiplier for conflict. And before we go further today, we should be very clear about how we're conceptualizing causation here. When I say climate change is a threat multiplier, I mean that it interacts with and often exacerbates other threats or other risk factors for conflict. So political or, or social uh, disruptions. And it acts in a probabilistic way. So to be very clear, climate change by itself is not going to cause a conflict anywhere. But it, it is likely to exacerbate existing problems. And the reason, if I'm seeming to labor this point, that I'm doing so is that there are some political scientists that seem to misunderstand this. And there, uh, there's been this straw man that's been erected repeatedly uh, about climate change by itself seemingly <coughs> causing conflict. But that's not what we're talking about today. So looking at that first line of inquiry, a qualitative exploration of recent conflicts and uh, a hypothetical future conflicts, Jeffrey Mazo has suggested that there are three types of conflict that are more likely because of climate change. The first is boundary disputes. Climate change is changing not just the climate, but the map. It's doing that because of rising sea level changing coastlines and importantly, in future, potentially submerging islands and therefore changing uh, exclusive economic zones. But also, it's melting the Arctic. And that's important because as that occurs, energy resources on the seabed will become perhaps more available and more exploitable. So boundaries that no one's really worried about before uh, will soon become hotly contested. And adding to that is that the Arctic, once it's more free of ice, will be an important uh, shipping lane. And when we think about, for instance, the strategic value of the Suez Canal, we get a sense of why controlling that area is important. However, this sort of conflict is probably pretty low probability. The second type of conflict that Mazo suggests is more likely to occur are resource wars. A frequently cited example of this might be a, a future conflict between Pakistan and India over water. Climate change will likely disrupt the monsoon, and both countries rely on agriculture as an important part of their economy and an important source of livelihood for millions of people. And the disrupted monsoon will be bad and will force them to rely more on rivers that they share. Uh, but at the same time, as climate change likely will melt the glaciers that feed these rivers, uh, the total amount of water, especially that available in summer, is likely to decrease, leading to potentially increased tension between these two neighbors. The third type of conflict that's made more likely by climate change 
is state instability. And I'll spend a little bit more time on this one than the others. It's regarded, I think, as more likely than, than the other two. In fact, some have suggested it's already occurred, but we'll get on to that later. Climate change uh, will have a number of, of physical effects, which will reduce resource scarcity, particularly uh, in sort of the middle part of the planet around the equator, uh, a part of the planet that, that already is heavily reliant on um, agriculture as a source of livelihood for a high proportion of its citizens. So we'll have the spread of deserts, sea level rise, uh, flooding potentially really important agricultural delta areas, and an increase in the incidence and potentially uh, also the intensity of natural disasters. This in turn will lead many resources to become more scarce uh, and potentially prompt migration as well, particularly migration from rural areas to uh, cities, often within countries. Um, and at the same time, a lot of people are likely to lose their livelihoods, uh, regardless of whether or not they migrate. And all of this will have a number of uh, really important socio-political consequences that put pressure on the state. So populations, um, population pressure will build in some of these rapidly expanding cities, which will be unable to cope with the rapid influx of people. Um, migration is also likely to uh, heighten ethnic uh, tensions and potentially ethnic conflict, as people who have not necessarily historically gotten along are brought into closer proximity and added to that mix in a situation of <coughs> intense resource competition. All of this, all of these things will also combine to drive economic decline in many of these countries, especially around the equator. <coughs> these things will combine to weaken the state, which will have, on the one hand, a reduced tax base because of economic decline, but at the same time, uh, citizens requiring more and more assistance to adapt to climate change. And the state often will find itself unable to uh, meet sort of the social contract that it has with its citizens. In this sort of situation, unfortunately, state and other elites sometimes uh, deliberately foment violence and uh, ethnic or other conflict in order to distract from failures of leadership and other more fundamental problems and to shore up their own their own support bases. Also, you get a um, reduced monopoly on violence by the state. The state is less able to um, to fund its its army or its uh, its police, and at the same time, its citizens have more grievances and less to lose. So the sort of calculation about do I risk a participation in a rebellion is changed 
because um, on the one hand, there's less to risk because you have less to lose. But on the other hand, your odds of success are greater because the state is bigger. And so this weakened state is a really important linchpin in the causal pathway from climate change to an increased risk of violence. Um, political science has also, as I suggested, used proxy measures to look at this quantitatively. Uh, and normally what's, what occurs is that a, a few variables like uh, changes in weather uh, are substituted for climate change, they're used as proxies. And of course they underestimate the total effects of violence. So we would expect that not all of these studies would um, find a link between these weather anomalies and an increased incidence of violence, but that some would. And in fact, that's exactly what's occurred. The study I've read about half find the link and half don't. And most of the authors of the ones that don't find the link say, well, it's not a big surprise, is it? We've kind of underestimated what climate change might do. The best of these studies, in my view, uh, is by Shang and colleagues. Um, and they looked at the risk of civil conflict onset uh, in countries affected by El Nino. And they hypothesized that El Nino years, which are hotter and drier, would have a higher risk of conflict onset than La Nina years, which are cooler and wetter. And looking between 1950 and 2004, that's exactly what they found. Uh, they found that it was, in fact, double the rate. Archaeology and history suggest a similar story. Links separated in space and time find a, uh, a link between changes in climate which reduce resource availability and ensuing conflict. So sites range from the middle Missouri region and Chaco Canyon in the US to the Maya Empire to Ireland, to Pacific Islands to East Timor. The general crisis of the Little Ice Age uh, saw widespread violence across North America, perhaps, and also certainly Eurasia. Um, Zhang and colleagues uh, looked over about a thousand year period in a series of studies, most in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and concluded that uh, they looked mostly at, at cooling periods that reduced agricultural productivity. But they wrote, right, and I'll quote, cooling impeded agricultural production, which brought about a series of serious social problems, including price inflation, then war outbreak, famine, and population decline successively. The findings suggest that worldwide and synchronistic war, peace, population, and price cycles in recent centuries have been driven mainly by long-term climate change. So the historical and archaeological evidence is very strongly suggestive that past civilizations uh, have certainly seen an increased uh, rate of conflict following climate change. And the risk is that while modern civilization is different, it's not different enough. At the end of the day, we all need to eat. Thank you, Devin. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We'll take the first break in Devin's presentation. What he's going to do is, that was kind of part one. And 
we will move to some music in a minute, but I'll just pick something up. The El Nino link, which was the key one um, that I didn't quite develop at the beginning. So I did mention that this is an El Nino year again, 2015. It's been a dry year. Um, you may have heard in the news this week thousands of people in Ethiopia are on the move because the rains have failed. Now, you also will have heard in the past the statement that you, can no, you cannot assign a particular weather event to climate change. That is a correct statement. You can't. But what you can do is look at trends, and you can say that there are trends that, to, that our climate is changing and that it is linked with the production of greenhouse gases from our use of fossil fuels. We see those trends. The science is in. I've followed the negotiations for 25 years. The science is in. We're not debating science really anymore. You can always debate science, of course, because some other bit of evidence comes in that tells you otherwise. But only if it's science, not if it's kind of vested interest funded stuff to tell you something otherwise. The science is in. What are we going to do about it? This is a hot year, it's an El Nino year, it's a dry year. We're expecting a really cold winter. How's our NHS going to prepare for that really cold winter? So that little link I just wanted to make was to Fortress Europe. One of the things we used to talk about as researchers, and I used to be a researcher at the University of Sangley looking at the ecological impacts of climate change, we talked about Fortress Europe. In the reports it used to say, well, 2050, 2060, sometime towards the 21st century. I used to read them and think, gosh, that sounds awful, but probably I'll be retired. I might even be dead. Lo and behold, it's 2015. We've got Fortress Europe already. You only have to watch the news to see how many people are on the move and how many people cannot get to where they're trying to get and how many countries in Europe are beginning to talk about putting walls up, including Sweden, which is frankly shocking. So on that note, where is... Oh, where are we at with the post-its? Has everybody got one? The needs one. Okay, I'll take that. Yes. Is a bag going around that will collect them? Or do I need to do that? Fabulous. Thank you, Alana, for passing the bag round. Um, do just put your post-it or piece of paper. The bag will travel around. And whilst that's happening, if we could do it with minimum rustling. I did want my mother's hat, but I forgot it, unfortunately. In fact, I couldn't find one. Um, minimum rustling, because we've got Tim and Alana to play for us. Do you want to speak first or play first? Do you want to say anything about yourselves first? Or? Do you need a mic or can you shout loudly? Or do you need I can say a few words before we play. Um, so my name's Tim Hall. I'm Australian musician and environmental activist for many years. Um, and believe passionately in bringing the two together, which I think Mark Francis wanted. Um, with music in this presentation, for these reasons, I see music as absolutely central to any attempt to deal with social issues, social change, social crises, for the simple reason that music, frankly, is society. Music co-evolved with society, music actually co-evolved with the concept of what is humanity. Uh, it comes from the impulses of um, of mating calls, of group bonding, of territorial marking, which develops into ethnic musics, into, um, into um, love songs, into war cries, into national anthems. Um, and for that reason, because it sits so deep in who we are, it has an extraordinary power to bring us together um, as well as to divide us, 
to help us accept new ideas, to, to prime our brains to accept new ideas, um, and to help us understand our place in the world. So it's absolutely central, I believe, to, to dealing with questions of peace and conflict, to dealing with climate change. And this piece that Alana brought to me, I think is um, I, was, uh, I could say a little bit about peace, but I was going to develop, in fact, what you said in terms of talking about uh, more instrumental, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, ways of uh, taking action and um, following what Tim said about music being fundamental. It's also very much something that can be supported within communities worldwide, and it's an early warning system, just as um, attacks on the media are an early warning system that there's something wrong going wrong in government, and just the freedom of information is incredibly important to support in those countries, so are cultural activities, so that we can actually um, keep the channels open. And I think it was a said so there'd been a substantial famine in other countries, I'm paraphrasing, with open government and a free media. Um, so as long as people are allowed to discuss things, so long as governments aren't trying to suppress information um, and cultural activities, particularly music, because it's just so powerful, um, the more we are able to uh, keep the channels open and respond to what's going on and take action. Okay, on that note, I'd like to hand over to play. Um, I would really appreciate if people can be quiet while, they, while Tim and Ilana play. Up here is the one I prepared earlier, the true blue Peter fashion. That's my Desert Island Disc of the Climate. You'll notice there's more than eight tracks because I couldn't cut it down. I truly, really, truly tried, but I just couldn't, so I've got 16. Obviously, we will endeavour to try eight from whatever we get from you as an audience. So this is a piece called uh, The Yiddish Soldat in the Trenches. I hope your Yiddish is good. It's by a clarinet player called Natalie Brandlein, who emigrated from Ukraine, uh, from Ukraine to the United States about 1910 uh, to escape the
thank you both. We'll go back to Devon if we can work out the technology. All right, so now, having, I hope, convinced you that there's a link between conflict and climate change, let's explore the second proposition, that conflict associated with climate change is bad for health. Along with my colleagues Mark Braywood and Colin Butler, I developed a typology of the health effects of climate change associated with conflict. The first type are the direct effects, and these are rather obvious. They include battle deaths and injuries to combatants, civilian deaths and injuries from the weapons of war, uh, and civilian deaths and injuries due to uh, attack on civilian food supplies and infrastructure. While this is obvious, I'm, I'm hoping to draw your attention to the fact that there is, in fact, within conflicts, a, a large continuum in the extent to which civilians are targeted and involved in conflict, uh, ranging from wars generally between states in which there are some efforts to avoid civilian casualties, even if there's more uh, collateral damage, as it's called, than we might hope for, uh, to the other end of the spectrum where uh, the attacks on civilians are very deliberate and an integral strategy to the conflict. The second broad category of health effects are the indirect effects of a single or a single conflict or a conflict that's repeated in the same area. This is devastating to health infrastructure, which makes it problematic to uh, conduct vector control programs, uh, makes it problematic to monitor for new and re-emerging diseases. Uh, beyond this, it, it does other things to make the conditions for disease transmission uh, much better, uh, including uh, refugee camps or creating refugee camps um, and uh, increased rates of sexual violence. Conflicts tend to reduce agricultural productivity, at least in the areas where they're being fought, uh, and economic output. Uh, you get often the killing and also the flight of health personnel. And the continuum I mentioned above uh, can be extended to, to this category. So you have some conflicts uh, where sexual violence is a deliberate strategy used to spread disease and inflict psychological trauma, as the UN recently found for the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, and conflicts in which doctors and healthcare personnel are deliberately targeted. At the other end of the spectrum, you have wars where the Red Cross and Red Crescent and medical personnel more generally are at least somewhat respected in their, their work. All of this is to say that not all conflicts are created equal, and not all conflicts have the same effect on health. The final and third typology uh, or uh, category is the indirect effects of a generalized increase in conflict due to climate change. If 
climate change increases the risk of conflict, then we can imagine that on the whole, uh, because there are lots of opportunities for conflict to break out, that as climate change progresses, assuming it, it continues to do so, the world will have more conflict, conflict than, a, than a counterfactual world without climate change. And this, I suggest, shifts what I call the sword plowshare balance. Even for countries that are not involved in these conflicts, uh, because as they see conflicts around them, they get worried about uh, their own uh, military defense and are likely to shift spending toward military spending. Because budgets are finite, this is likely to uh, detract from spending on public health measures and the determinants of health, like education. It's likely that a similar sort of trend might be seen in aid. And uh, unless leadership is very wise, we might see aid shifting to military aid as countries seek to prop up friendly governments that are besieged by conflict themselves. Uh, and because aid budgets seem, unfortunately, to be particularly finite, we might uh, suggest that humanitarian aid uh, will be the worse off for that. In a future world with more conflict because of climate change, we might also expect to see more xenophobia and protectionism, uh, particularly of food and other critical resources. Um, we already see you know, bans on, on food exports in, in times of, of uh, contracting availability. Um, and as climate change progresses, this, this will likely uh, get worse. Uh, that will likely dent trade. And so too will uh, the fact that shipping routes will likely be disrupted if there is a, a general uptick in the amount of conflict. Uh, living in Australia as I do, I'm highly cognizant just how reliant we are on trade here, uh, international trade that uh, is frankly quite vulnerable to um, conflict in, in a number of, or between a number of, of countries um, if, that, if that conflict were uh, to be taken to the seas. All of these things would reduce economic growth. Uh, and economic growth would be particularly reduced in conflict areas. And globally, reduced economic growth would likely see less money being spent on health and its determinants. Having gone through that typology, let's look a little bit more closely at how climate change might alter the way conflicts are thought. Or to put the question a little bit differently, uh, look at how uh, climate change might differentially increase various types of conflict. In America and Australia, and I imagine in Britain, when many people think of conflicts, they, they have in their minds a sort of archetypal conflict, maybe based on World War II or even the first Gulf War. 
And these wars were fought primarily between states. And if, if two states are fighting to take over territory or to install a friendly government, all other things equal, they would just as soon minimize damage to health infrastructure and other infrastructure. But conflict is evolving. Uh, Mary Caldor, building on the work of Robert Kaplan, has uh, suggested uh, a phenomenon that she calls new wars. And in some ways, this designation is a little misleading because, as she acknowledges, this type of conflict has, in fact, gone on for a long time. But her argument is it's increasing in its frequency. New, war, new wars occur when state power declines. Uh, and you might remember earlier in the first part of the, this session, I asked you to hang on to the idea that, that the weakened state was a really important uh, step in the process, the causal chain between climate change and conflict. Uh, and so these new wars are sort of conceptually fit in that, uh, that causal chain. And one of the effects of, of these new wars is that uh, there's uh, uh, the state, as I mentioned, has a, a decreased ability to enforce its monopoly on violence. And as a result, uh, new wars have different actors than sort of traditional wars, which are fought just between militaries. So new wars see not only militaries fighting, but also paramilitaries, mercenaries, gangs, and potentially even child soldiers. Because the actors are different, uh, the funding sources are also different. Uh, in a traditional war between states, funding of the, the fighting forces occurs via taxation uh, channeled through the state. But if you're a paramilitary, uh, even if you have some, you know, loose association with the state, you're probably not uh, getting uh, all of your revenue from, from the state through taxation. So you have to rely on other, other forms of income, including uh, kidnapping, resource extraction, the drug trade, and what we might euphemistically call the taxation of humanitarian aid. New wars are different in their objectives. Um, in that they're often driven by identity politics and with a goal of removing the other uh, from a, a territory. The other is often conceptualized in ethnic or religious terms. Uh, and the strategies are similarly different. Um, so if you're trying to get rid of others from your what you perceive to be your territory, genocide's a good strategy. Um, and so are acts of terror committed against civilians that inspire migration or conformity. Uh, the economic incentives on the leaders, in, in contrast to sort of traditional wars, are not to uh, win the peace, but instead to maintain conflict, because paramilitary leaders are often doing better in situations of conflict than they would in situations of peace. All this tends to prolong conflicts, leading um, me and um, a couple of colleagues, including Colin Butler and uh, Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti uh, from your part of the world, to call uh, climate change just not a threat multiplier, but a peace inhibitor. 
And that's also because peace is virtually always a negotiated thing. As long as you have people with guns, you need to convince them that with peace there's a life for them with a motive of dignity and welfare. And if climate change shrinks the resource pie too far, um, then that life is not available for uh, all those people if effectively the, the carrying capacity is, is reduced um, given the, the technology and, and capital available in the space. Two wars or conflicts have been associated in the academic literature with climate change. Those are in uh, Darfur in Sudan and in Syria. Though I, I should point out that the one in Darfur has received a lot of debate um, as to whether or not climate change helped trigger it. But regardless, I think we can agree that climate change might have exacerbated it. And we can see all of the characteristics of new wars uh, that I've just been uh, discussing present in both of those conflicts. Um, and as a consequence, the uh, humanitarian toll uh, has been quite great. Between the two of them, uh, they've created almost certainly more than uh, 5 million refugees and likely caused uh, well over half a million deaths. So in terms of health consequences, um, these two conflicts have been quite devastating. And if they are typical of the conflicts which are exacerbated by climate change in future, then it's, it's bad and they, it suggests that not only will climate change increase the frequency of, of conflicts, but it will make those conflicts particularly bad for health. Devin. Now, Devin, Devin. Devin, can I, can I stop you there? Because that sounds like a really good point to end on and give the, the floor a chance to ask you a couple of questions because we do have to move on to the next speaker. I'm sorry that we do have a pretty tight schedule. Is that okay? That's all right. Would that be all right? It sounded like a great point to end on. So as a, we've literally got sort of five questions, five minutes at this point to ask Devin questions, and then we'll come back to it if we've got time. But because of the technical technical problems at the beginning, we're a bit short on time for <coughs> question. So has anybody got anything specific they'd like to ask Devin? Gentlemen at the front, please. Um, Jim Paris from Garstang in Lancashire, a long way away from where you are. Uh, I, I want to ask you about water. Conflict. Uh, I've looked at uh, an NGO work in Port Excellent Development building sand dams, and they were attempting to use sand dam development through a local NGO in uh, the, uh, the Sudan to resolve conflict between pastoralists and agriculturalists when the uh, congregation that's wrecked South Sudan, stopped them from doing so. But they're still hoping to do so. It seems to me that there is, I wonder if you could comment on the likely effectiveness of specific uh, sustainable development uh, projects that try and bring people together to develop the very uh, technologies they need to fight climate change for themselves. We've got about two minutes to answer that one, Devin. 
Go for it. And I'll need at least 30 seconds uh, for you to, to repeat it because I couldn't hear. I did wonder that. Can we practice it in some way? Um, I did wonder if Devon wouldn't be able to hear you properly. Is there a way of asking that quite quickly? Climate change. Uh, I think, I think, no, sorry. I think you, um, if someone by uh, the microphone, like you, Francis, could, could sit, just summarize the question. It was about water. It was about how to sustainably try and uh, address water challenges and with a project on the ground and how would people on the ground do it themselves, yeah? Uh, yes, but actually employing people from both sides of a conflict to do it together right. to resolve their joint difficulties. Excellent question. Uh, I think uh, that's very good and uh, I was going to conclude by saying that uh, Conflicts like Syria and Darfur are very difficult to intervene once they've started. Um, if you do get a conclusion, I, um, I think it's important to act very rapidly to um, uh, develop the conditions that foster peace. I think also um, uh, prevention in the form of humanitarian aid uh, that, that reduces environmental impact locally, um, but also provides people uh, with uh, a chance at, at a, a better life it is very helpful and especially if it's, it's bringing together uh, groups that are not necessarily the best of friends. Okay, I'm going to have to move on to the next speaker but <coughs> if you two would like to email each other to explore that question and um, we'll make sure that you've got Devin's email contacts at the end and you can get a bit more depth and think about it a bit more. We just haven't the space to give it the time it needs. Can I come to you? Is that okay, David? And please, you, can you stay with us? I'm going to encourage can anyone uh, to, to email me if they had any questions or wanted to collaborate on anything. Very happy to hear from you. Devin, can you hear anything else that's going on in the room, or are you pretty sort of isolated there on the other side of the planet? I'm pretty isolated. I thought you might be. We, I think we have to apologise on this end. The, the challenge of Skype, we have saved you know, tons of carbon dioxide. Uh, and all sorts of other wasted environmental resources, but it's really tough talking to each other, you know, even in the same, different culture, similar language, the challenge is still pretty hard. So I want to thank Devin for having a damn good go at it, sorry I shouldn't probably swear, my kids would say a darn good go, uh, go at it. And uh, thank you Devin, and then we'll move on. But actually done me a great favour and covered a fair bit of what I w was going to speak about. So I'll try and whiz through and then hopefully we'll have some space at the end, time at the end to, for questions both to me and to Devon. So my background is actually um, peace building. I work for International Alert, which um, I've been working on peace building for the past 30 years. But since 2006, we've been looking at the relationship between climate change and, and conflict. 
Um, and as Francis has said, um, the consequences of climate change are already upon us. It's not a tomorrow problem, it's a today problem. We just heard on the news a couple of days ago that we've already reached a one degree raise in temperature and we're, we're, you know, we're hurtling towards two degrees, which is what has been classified by the UN framework on climate change as being dangerous climate change. Um, so, you know, it's a very current and present um, risk and the risks linked to climate change are already affecting communities around the world, but the way in which these impacts play out isn't just dependent on the physical climate hazard, the, the drought or the increase in temperature, but also by the context in that particular um, geographic location. So the same kind of um, sea level rise, for example, here in the southeast of England isn't going to have the same impact on political instability as it is in the south coast of, um, of Pakistan, in Sindh, where um, the same kind of magnitude of sea level rise that we actually don't experience because we've got, you know, 20, 30 years ago the government built the Thames Barrier, which means that London isn't flooding every year. Um, that's not there in, in countries where there is a weaker governments in place and just the, the insufficient capacity to plan and manage risks, future risks, in the same kind of way. Um, so what I'm going to do is discuss the relationship between climate change and conflict um, at, a, at a more granular level, and also talk about some of the challenges in responding to these risks in fragile contexts, um, but also what we can do despite some of these challenges. Given the uncertainty of specific climate impacts, there is a lot that we don't know. It feels like we can be groping around in the dark, for, particularly from the practitioner point of view. Um, but there's also a fair bit that we, can, we do know and, and can work with. And I will be focusing on fragile states. The reason is because, yes, climate change impacts are affecting all of us. However, and I'll quote the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their fifth assessment report, they affirmed that the impact of climate change on human well-being, peace and security will, will worsen, especially for the poorest members of society. And many of the most affected will live in fragile states where underdevelopment is intractable and the national capacity to manage these risks is weak. Um, to illustrate the, the relationship, between climate change and conflict. We looked at, and this was quite a while ago, we decided to overlay the, relation, the, the incidence of clim climate change, the impact of climate change, rather, according to the um, IPCC's latest report, with where there is current conflict or instability. And here we can see um, a map of the world where in red we can see 56 countries which face an increased risk of political instability, and a further 46 which, in orange, which face an increased risk of conflict. Now this is, is a very, I mean, it, it's just showing a correlation, um, not cause. But the point here is that the places that are most affected by the impacts of climate change um, are also those that are already fragile. So in the next, you know, roughly half an hour, maybe 20 minutes, um, I'll touch on 20 minutes, maybe 15. Um, I'll touch on the nature, the compound nature of climate and fragility risk. <coughs> then, second, um, a few words on uncertainty and the certainties that we can actually work with. Then I'll talk about some of the challenges, the practical challenges of working in fragile states to address these issues. And then finally, I'll share some observations from our field research to to, to see how things are actually playing out on the ground. So, to start with risks, risks are are compound. As, as Devin said in his presentation, 
They can only be understood by understanding their interactions. The most meaningful way to, to think about climate change with regards to security and conflict is as a threat multiplier um, or um, a peace inhibitor even. Um, so climate change is going to interact with these pre-existing social, political, economic stresses that are already there. It's not going to create conflict in and of itself, but it's going to put pressure on existing stresses, things like unemployment, inequality, lack of basic service provision, making it even harder for those um, governments and, and communities to address these challenges and shift the tipping point then at which conflict might ignite. In a recent report that we wrote for the G7, they commissioned us to look at the links between climate and fragility called A New Climate for Peace. We identified seven compound risk climate fragility risk factors. Um, these I don't know if you can read up here, but um, we've got local resource competition, as Devon mentioned, pressures on kind of land and water, climate-affected um, natural resources. Then we've got second, livelihood insecurity and migration. As livelihoods, particularly agrarian livelihoods, become harder, people move. Um, extreme weather events and disasters, volatile food prices and food provision, uh, transboundary water management, sea level rise and coastal degradation. And seven, not actually an impact of climate change, but actually the unintended consequences of climate policies themselves. So when we don't think them through and actually do things that make um, and the, the policies actually make it harder to deal with the, the consequences of climate change and, and conflict. Um, I won't go into these in, in too much detail unless you want me to at the end because I think Devon um, covers the overall um, kind of those, those linkages pretty comprehensively. But just a, a quick word on food prices and, and provisions. There are lots of different drivers and triggers of conflict, but what we found in our research for the G7 report is that actually food prices... Um, can be a real trigger um, in, in fragile contexts. We could arguably say that the Arab Springs, that there was a lot of, there were numerous underlying factors, such as the, the political regimes in place. But, um, but it was the trigger that um, started things off, that kind of domino effect starting in Tunisia with the very tragic self-immolation of the um, market vendor was the fact that food prices had, had gone up so high that he was unable to, to provide food for his family. So we actually spent a lot of time trying to organise these, these clusters or risks um, in, into, um, into particular categories. But we actually thought, oh, well, you know, this, this will serve us, these seven will, will serve us. They make sense, but there are no doubt numerous other iterations which will make just as much sense. And that's just the point. The way that we organise risks is not important. What's important is that we identify the and understand the interlinkages between these risks and the knock-on consequences of one risk on the other. So it's not the drought itself that's going to be the challenge. It's not the direct physical impact of climate change, but the knock-on consequence of the drought in Ethiopia at the moment how that's going to affect the other social, political, economic pressures, the current um, uh, quite, quite deep um, grievances towards the current political regime in, in Ethiopia, how is that going to um, be magnified in the face of, of this current drought, for example? So if we take the case of Syria, which Devon also touched on, 
there you go. Sorry. Um, so yeah, with Syria, the climate-related drought from 2006 to 11, it overwhelmed the coping capacity of rural farmers, leading to large swathes of migration as these farmers found that their, their livelihoods were no longer viable. They moved from, from rural settings to already stressed urban centres such as Darar. Now, these urban centres were already stressed. They didn't have the infrastructure, the coping capacity to deal with this influx of people. Um, and, and, and were, were overwhelmed. But it was against the backdrop of an already crumbling social contract and decades of uh, long historical grievances towards the Assad regime that conflict actually ignited. So it wasn't the drought in and of itself, it was the drought in the context of everything else that was going on in Syria. Now the ability of a state to manage a risk is best understood along a fragility spectrum. Um, not wanting to get too much into the jargon, but if we think about fragility on one end and stability, a stable, peaceful state on the other, a failed state, you've got somewhere like Somalia where you don't have, the, the state doesn't have legitimacy, they don't have um, control of, of um, the armed forces, uh, they're, they're largely dysfunctional and they can't provide basic services for, for their, their people. Um, as states emerge from conflict or are in political transition, places like Myanmar, the legitimacy of the government is still often highly contested and the, the state can only fulfill, fulfill part of its functions. As institutions are rebuilt, or in many cases actually built, um, the relationship with, between the government and their populations will improve. And as the state becomes more stable, it's then going to become more resilient because it's able to provide those basic services. It can, it can help its citizens cope with the impacts of climate change, such as a drought. It can't prevent the drought, but it can certainly support people with, um, with coping mechanisms. So then a resilient state has the capacity and the legitimacy of governing a population and its territory. They can manage and adapt to change, be it societal, political, economic, or indeed environmental. Um, it's worth noting also that even within a, a stable state or a, a less fragile state, you can have pockets of instability which shouldn't be overlooked but by kind of national level analysis. Somewhere like Kenya that might seem, or, or Uganda even, might seem stable, but you've got um, pockets of, of uh, violence in the north and east of Kenya uh, where you've got very lethal pastoral feuds between rival herders um, and these, these conflicts are becoming even more intense and more, um, more fatal as climate change makes that pastoral livelihood less and less viable. So once the country has crossed where should we put Devin now? Um, once the country's crossed that threshold Sorry, Devin, you don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just moving you around my screen in a way. So once once you've moved into across that threshold into into violent conflict, um, states can often get locked into this vicious cycle of of fragility, conflict, and underdevelopment, and you're and you're locked in. Um, and it follows then that. If a country is also highly exposed to climate change impact, then climate vulnerability will further entrench the conflict cycle, with climate change increasing pressures on, 
underdevelopment and fragility, making peace much harder to achieve or sustain. So it, it really is this, this peace inhibitor, as Devin says. So to explain this diagram, you, you've got kind of physical um, impacts of climate change, sea level rise, increased temperature, drought, floods, increased um, extreme weather events. These will then put pressure on, on governance, um, on things like the institutions, the healthcare systems, the, the infrastructure, transport, roads, um, legal systems, as, you know, as natural resources become, um, or access to resources change or become less available, what, what, how, how equitable are, um, are the distribution mechanisms and is there, a, is there a just legal system in place to ensure that equity in um, who gets what? There's, a, there's less water, how do we allocate it? Um, so if governance is strong, you can go up down around this virtuous cycle where in the face of climate impacts, a government is able to allocate resources effectively, it can support migration, you know, migration doesn't need to be bad, people move, it can often be a very positive coping strategy if it's managed well and governed um, equitably between the, the migrant community and the host community. Um, and then this can actually lead to increased resilience of, of communities um, and increased re resilience to climate change and to conflict. However, if governance is weak, then the, then vulnerable communities, particularly the poorest, are going to be um, profoundly affected by the impacts of climate change on their <coughs> lives and livelihoods. And then you get locked into this cycle of, of conflict where climate change is then compounding those pre-existing drivers of conflict like marginalisation, lack of livelihoods, etc. Um, so if we see climate change as a risk multiplier, Um, which interacts with pre-existing stresses, making peace harder to achieve. The flip side is that actually if, if we address um, these risks, these compound risks of climate change and fragility, if we look at them um, and, and deal with them comprehensively, for example, in a post-conflict setting, um, I guess we could sort of think about South Sudan as post-conflict if we're being particularly positive. In a post-conflict urban reconstruction project in Juba, for example, which is taking into account changing rainfall patterns um, and is factoring this into its, its water and sanitation plans and, and infrastructure, for example. Something like that has the potential of not just um, building resilience to climate change but also to poverty and conflict. I'm using this example because we're actually working with a lot of um, infrastructure um, providers in, in Sudan who are working through kind of aid agencies like the, the Dutch government, and they're not taking climate change into account. So they're doing all, all this work to, to build um, a peaceful post-conflict um, South Sudan, and they're not taking account of climate change. And so we're, we're seeing um, very short-sighted um, development interventions, which are going to become out of date in the next five to ten years because they're just not, not going to be sustainable. Um, we're actually working with them to, to try and ensure that they are sustainable, um, so hopefully it's not too negative. Um, so that, I think I'll, I'll leave up there on, on risks. Um, now just a quick word on, on uncertainty. Um, 
there is a lot that we don't know. We don't know how much, when we're thinking about climate change, how much average temperatures that actually rise. We're trying to um, avoid two degrees, but where, where will we get to? Uh, we don't know what the specific impact of climate change will be at a local level, um, at the national level, or even within a country. And we don't know what will be agreed at the next um, climate change conference in this December in Paris um, with regards to emissions reduction um, pledges. But we do know that even if tomorrow um, we agree to, or, or the, the, the world decides that it, it's enough and we have to cut emissions and the emissions are cut down to zero, we still need to adapt because the, we're, we're locked in to the climate impacts of emissions to date playing out over the next 20 and to, um, some estimates 30 years. So those, those, that, that carbon in the atmosphere is already causing warming that we're locked into and so those impacts are going to be playing out and we need to adapt to those up to 2050 at least. Um, and we also know that the poorest will be the most vulnerable. So when we understand vulnerability You've got exposure, which is you know, the, the, the physical impact of climate change. Sensitivity, how sensitive are, are you, that the geographic location or community, to that particular impact. And then there's, there's the adaptive capacity. So, yes, we can say that um, to an extent, exposure and sensitivity, that's in the hands of the heavens. It's de dependent on, on climate impact that we don't know. But adaptive capacity... That is, that is something that we, can, we do know. We, it, it's dependent on governance and it's dependent on stability. Um, so if we, go back, if we go back to the example of Syria, um, there, whilst we might not have been able to predict the, the five-year drought, although anecdotally there were strong warning signals as the drought progressively worsened over the years, what was evident was that the, the pre-existing um, <coughs> pressures on those poor farmers, and, and that would have been um, a red flag for those that were actually looking, and it would have been possible to, to address that vulnerability um, despite the uncertainty around climate impacts. So what does this actually mean on the ground? Um, I'll take you through a very... A very quick, thanks. Um, sure, okay, yeah. Um, a very quick case study. So, as Devon said, when we think about what the climate, the impact of climate and conflict might look like, this is what we get um, in the Daily Mail or Fox News. This is kind of hordes of climate migrants fleeing from um, their country to um, European shores. And this can actually really skew responses in terms of dealing with the actual reality. You know, Sweden putting up a, um, uh, a fence pretty much, or um, well, it's not physically putting up a fence, but yeah, that, the, the, the fortress Europe, for, um, fortress Britain kind of mentality. But actually, this is what it, it tends to look like. So this is a little girl, Nisha. She's waiting for her family to pack, pack up all their belongings and move from their village, which has just been flooded during the Koshi floods, um, in, so it was now a couple of years ago, 2010, um, 
to move to the next village. So what we can see behind her, it's not a desert, it's a, it's a floodplain. Um, it, it used to be a river, um, or it used to be the most fertile um, agricultural land in Nepal, and now it's, it's decimated with, um, with sediment. Um, so she, with her family, will be moving to another village 10 kilometers away, which was less severely affected by the flood, but was still affected. And so they're, they're moving, and we found out afterwards um, that um, the host community was less than welcoming because they also had their fresh water depleted, um, their, their habitable and cultivatable land was also negatively affected. So they weren't particularly welcoming of these newcomers putting additional pressure on the scarce resources that they had. So this is actually the, the reality of environmental migration that we, we see more frequently than what the media might lead us to believe. Um, rural, urban, in-country, south-south. Um, so just a quick quick picture of what things can look like in, on the ground. So staying in Nepal, this is a village, um, Tulimadao, in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's, it's northeast of Kathmandu. And for the past, past five years, the monsoons have failed. So this is the river that used to feed the, the communities in the village. It's a pretty impressive, um, vast river um, called Ranajor. Um, but um, just five years ago, it was flowing strongly and provided fresh water to irrigate the paddy which was a key crop and sort of livelihood. You can see the paddy fields along here. But um, I don't know if you can see, but that's, it's, it's silt. Um, you can't get a bit idea of scale, but I think like something with one of the specs, it, it would be a tractor. So that's how big this river was. And within five years, it's, um, it's dried up. Um, and according to villagers, this has never happened in living memory. So rice used to be the staple crop for nutrition, for, for food, but also for livelihoods. Um, but the crop has failed and there's um, high levels of um, uh, unemployment and, and malnutrition amongst those remaining and of course those that could have left. Um, I just wanted to show you this picture because there have been attempts to address the problem. Three years ago before some political elections um, the government gave a one-off grant to the, the village um, of about $3,000 and now it was in the middle of water stress and the community spent this on building this water tap to extract surface water. Now, the community members are mainly rice farmers. They don't know about over-extraction of surface water when groundwater is already low. And what happened was um, the tap ran dry within months because there just wasn't enough um, groundwater there um, for them to extract. So this construction now only serves as a rest stop for the, the villagers who have to walk two kilometres uphill from the nearest functioning pump. Now this il illustrates um, how seemingly positive development interventions um, can actually do more harm than good if they don't take account of the changing climate and environmental factors. So this was planned from a developmental perspective. It hadn't taken into account the, the changing rainfall patterns, meaning that there just wasn't going to be enough water to, to fill the aquifers of this, this water pump. But the risks weren't only posed by climate change. It was increasingly clear that the Limadal's problems were also about poor resource management. So this family had just felled a tree um, because they were farmers, they were, had less income from, from rice farming, um, rice cultivation. So they were chopping down this tree to sell it for charcoal to increase their income. Um, of course, the more you deforest, the more 
uh, you get soil erosion, the more you get, um, uh, the more your, your crops will fail because there's just no, um, what's the word, um, the, the, the quality of the, 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 the land will erode because the, the root systems aren't there to keep all the nutrients in the soil. So it's, it, they're all related and yet um, there's not really a joined up strategy to, to address the problem at the community level or even at the, the government or within the NGOs that we looked at. So addressing water does need us to look at the, the whole picture. So this snapshot shows that it's not as simple as nature providing less water. One of the villagers I spoke to, he said, you know, we've been cheated by nature. But actually, it seemed clearer to me that it was, it was cheated by poor governance. Um, the most effective ways to address climate change amongst this community was, would have been to understand the knock-on consequences of climate impacts on their livelihoods, on um, on the governance provisions that were uh, that were expected, um, and whilst it might not always lead to conflict, now this is a post-conflict context here in Nepal and very politically unstable. Um, it is a key issue. Climate change is a key issue to, to take into account if we want sustainable peace in a context such as Nepal. So just just to end, um, how do we understand complexity then? Um, there are lots of tools, there are lots of academic analyses that we can look at. Devin touched on a, a bunch of these. Um, but I would like to just stress these, t these three key things. You know, Whose who's risk are we looking at? Climate change is going to affect different people differently. It's going to affect the rich differently to the poor. Within the same village, it's going to affect poor um, rural farmers differently to the wealthier landowners. Um, so we need to understand whose list, risks we're looking at. Um, we also need to understand how those factors are interlinked and we need to understand what the, not just the direct consequences, but the knock-on consequences are on existing socio-political and economic stresses, things like livelihood insecurity, provision of basic services um, such as healthcare and clean water, and also the ability, availability and access to natural resources. Yeah, okay. okay. Sure, 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 I'll leave you there. Thank you. I need to stop then. Because we're short time, what I propose is I finish the bit I was going to do, and then um, if people want to stay to have some questions and more discussion, please stay. But I appreciate people may need to leave. Okay? Could you get me back to my slides? And I'll try, and I'll do, this is very brief, but it would be a shame not to finish it as it was sort of designed. And we'll try and have questions. Do stay, do go. We'll stay. Okay, so just really final words. 2015, it's been a huge year for climate campaigners. We've seen many campaigns come to fruition. It's been unbelievable for all of us who work in climate change. From recognising that uh, well-respected companies cheat, like VW, um, by measuring their emissions wrongly. So seeing the air quality in Indonesia, which is quite frankly more important right now than the sort of long-term impacts of climate change, but it's a fundamental driver. We're burning fossil fuels, we're polluting the atmosphere, we're killing people. So looking at fracking around the UK and the US, and uh, people not understanding the risks attached to fracking and why it's the wrong direction to go, and what we need is a clean energy future that's based on renewable energy. Um, it's very hard to stabilise a climate 
it's probably more straightforward to just change the way you produce and use energy. Use it more efficiently, use clean energy with simpler technologies. To pipelines that some people have quite rightly refused, no XL. It's unusual to say no to something and it works. If you say to people don't take drugs, it doesn't tend to work. I'm talking public health now. If you say people don't smoke, it doesn't tend to work. If you say don't drink, it doesn't tend to work. Something about saying no at the moment to fossil fuels is working. Now, I don't know if you can read that, so I'll read it. But this is an indigenous woman from the Arctic. I am the face of pipeline resistance. I'm small, but I'm strong. I'm young, but I'm not afraid to speak out. I'm descended from generations of strong women who protected our land. And on the 11th of November 2015, President Obama rejected this pipeline. It is a victory. America is a global leader. Approving the project would have undercut any kind of global leadership. The biggest risk America faced was not acting. We'll have to see what they do at the climate negotiations, which are coming up. They've not been a global leader to date, so I'm not putting too much faith in that statement, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They've got the resources. The people who will make a difference will be each and one of every us in this room. Do whatever you can to take the message forward about, I'm hoping that's working, is it working? Climate change, do whatever you can do to discuss these issues, whether it's about refugees and the connections with climate change. Each one of us can do something, however small, however big. This week has been peace week on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. The guns fell silent, we will remember, and I will read, I'm going to read a poem. It was one of my early books as a teenager, First World War Poetry. The poems interpret and record a war too recent to forget and too terrible to remember. So Flanders Fields. Have I got the mic still? I'll use that. So in Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses road on road that mark our place. And in the sky the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived. Felt dawn, saw sunset, glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. This is why the Syrian refugees cannot simply go back to where they came from. We cannot keep bombing people and shooting people and asking them to then go back home. In England we have a reputation, alongside others, of being a welcoming nature, nation, of being kind to strangers, epitomised in Paddington, for all of you I'm sure people have come across him. We will hopefully not have forgotten how to treat strangers, said Aunt Lucy. Do watch the film, it was out last year. I want to ugh, use the technology right. I want to dedicate this session to three very key people who are very important in the world of both climate change campaigning and environmental campaigning. The first is Michael Meacher MP, who just died uh, last month. Uh, he uh, was probably our greatest environment secretary. Notice how the packet was mentioned earlier, and I would like to—I'll find out more about that from Paul Rogers later. Michael Meacher, um, I worked very closely with him in the run-up to the COP6 negotiations. I'm sure stuff went on beyond that. 
Uh, he understood climate change, he understood nature protection, he understood poverty. Um, he was probably maligned for many of those things. And I'm like somebody else at the moment who seems to be attracting a lot of attention for his unusual views. Um, that's one person. And I'd then like to mention Felicity Flick Wishart, who is, was an environmental campaigner, climate change campaigner in Queensland, Australia, a friend of Tim Hollows, uh, a colleague of mine. I didn't know Flick particularly well, but we did work together on shale oil campaigns in Australia. I was based in Australia for Wild Groupies. And Flick was born in the same year as me, 1965, and she died this year, and she died in her sleep, for no obvious reason. And I was utterly shocked to think, that could happen to any of us, really. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know how long we've got. So let's make each day count. And finally to Ilan Kurdi. If you don't know his name, I'm sure you can probably guess it. He had a public death. If any two-year-old, three-year-old, is to have such a public death, then we must not forget him. Or let that death go in vain, or let that death go to waste. And we must act with his memory in mind. War and conflict do not have the last word. We need to stop bombing people, we need to stop shooting people, we need to stop having fights over all sorts of things. And then we can work out what to do about some of those even harder, bigger issues. It's called triage. I want to finish and give the last word, which is my legacy track, which I discovered two days ago. I don't know if this is going to work, because the technology is defeating me. It's from Australia. It's by an indigenous Australian musician. Probably the best one out of Australia, I gather, from Tim. Does anybody know how to make a um, clip work on a PowerPoint? That's right, see we've got experts in the room, we can get there. We might even finish on time. It might be slow. Okay.
listening. That track was about his son, his father's death, by the way, if you haven't guessed in some way or another. That was something else we start now, never mind. Um, we're out of time. You're welcome to stay if you want to ask any questions from the panel. The panel will stay, but I totally appreciate if you need to go. Unfortunately, technology lets down. Thank you.
So it'll just go go down from the top sort yeah. of thing to, yeah. to find to find the answer. Yeah. Alright. So the first one there. And if it's wrong, just press advance and you get the Oh right, okay. And so there's the top five export and there's the top five in the port. I'll just go through those and then switch in the presentation. Okay. Sounds good. Oh, I 